Ryan Olke, what's up, brother? Hey, good to see you. Good to see you, man. Another episode of Inhabit. We're back. We're back, baby. Um, so yeah, I think what we're going to do today is, um, I feel like I say this every <laughs> every episode we have. I'm like, we're going to do something a little special today. But today, hey, guys, is going to be keep really it special. special. It's going to be really special. Uh, it's going to be so special, in fact, that we've even brought on a special guest. So that's how special this is. Um, so let's get into it. So today what we're going to be doing is we're going to be talking about inhabiting your perspective. Uh, you know, a lot of people who watch this show are already pretty familiar with, um, you know, the Integral Project and some of the major ideas that come out of the Integral Project, such as the four quadrants. And one of the questions that I see asked a lot in this space is like, okay, you know, the four quadrants are a great sort of um, cognitive tool that helps me kind of make sense of the world around me. But how does this actually land in my life, right? Like, how do I actually use these quadrants? How do I actually step into these sorts of perspectives to enact my reality? Because it's one thing to sort of look at this as, you know, a bunch of boxes on a piece of paper, right, that have some fairly heavy ideas, some heavy lifting ideas behind them. And it's another to actually sort of practice these perspectives in the moment, take these perspectives on one at a time and learn how to become just a little bit more familiar with these different kinds of perspectives so that they become that much more intuitive to us. Because um, I think the basic idea here is that we're actually sort of taking these perspectives and sliding among these perspectives all the time. Just about every single day, we're taking multiple versions of these perspectives. And so what we're going to do today is sort of, um, you know, something that our guest Bruce uh, described as a perspectival yoga. And I think that's a really, really great frame for, the, for what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be taking a perspectival yoga that takes a close, intimate look at the inner and the outer of each of the four quadrants. And that sounds like a lot. I mean, that right there is a pretty, you know, sort of cognitive <laughs> phrasing, the inner and the outer of the four. What the hell does that mean? We're going to show you what that means. And in fact, what we're going to do is we're actually hopefully going to show you that this is actually a simplicity that is on the other side of a whole lot of complexity. Um, we could sit here and have academic conversations about any of these perspectives all day long if we want to, but we're actually going to sort of, you know, skip that part a little bit. We'll unpack some of this and, and talk about some of the interesting ideas behind it. But really what we want to do is help folks learn how to identify these perspectives and take them more naturally, more fluidly. Um, so I think that's what we're here today. So let's introduce our guest. Yeah. Okay. We've got Mr. Bruce Alderman. Bruce, um, it is so awesome to have you on the show today. So you are a professor, you are um, a, a longtime integral academic, um, and you are, you know, just someone who uh, I've been friends with, geez, for almost 20 years now, pretty much since we launched Integral Naked back in 2003. I think you were one of the, the first people and one of the most prolific people uh, in the integral community, even all the way back then. Um, so it is so awesome to have you here with us today, man. Hey, great, Corey. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's great to be here. I don't know if I've ever met you in person, but I'm I'm wondering if I did because when I went to uh, Ken's house, it was right before, like maybe a week before the launch of Integral Naked, and he announced it to us and said that we're about to do this, and if you want to sign up, he gave us the details, and there were other people in the house with him, but. 
I don't know if it was you. <laughs> I, I, I could have been there. I might not have. I don't know. That was like 20 years ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. That was a long time ago. No. And it's, yeah. And it, basically you and I have been, um, you know, pretty tight online uh, this entire time. And in fact, Bruce, you know, you're sort of the guy I go to when I need someone to check my math. You know, I've got, I've got two people I look to and one of them tends to be really, really busy. That's Ken. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and then, you know, I have you and, you know, you actually helped me a lot when I was sort of trying to come up with a way of framing these perspectives. Um, you know, you and I sort of had a lot of back and forth and it was really helpful. I think it, it you know, there are certain of these perspectives that I had a hard time, not necessarily taking, but communicating. Right. There's a couple little tricky perspectives in here. And through my conversations with you, it became so much more clear to the point where like some of these perspectives now I'm having a hard time not seeing them. You know what I mean? They're so pervasive. I see them all over the place and, and we'll get into some of that um, shortly. But yeah, I think that this is going to be a, a very rich and nourishing conversation for all of us, no matter if you are a longtime seasoned integral veteran and you know sort of the academic work inside out, or if you're an integral newcomer and you're just kind of leaning into your curiosity a bit and you wanna learn a little bit more about what these perspectives are, how to take them and sort of how useful they can be um, in our lives. So I think this is gonna be great and I'm psyched to have you with us, bro. Thank you, yeah, looking forward to it. Yeah, so Ryan, I'm thinking, you know, just a kind of a little bit of an origin story here. So we've done a couple episodes in a row that I, you know, sort of in my mind kind of constellate together. And we started off with, um, you know, basically using film clips to describe all the major altitudes of consciousness. Uh, and then we did a, a similar episode, but using video games. And these two episodes are just have been so well received um which is which is awesome they seem to be really really helpful for people because they're giving people very common ordinary you know sort of cultural reference points to to make sense of this stuff um and then last week or i'm sorry last month we did an episode on inhabit your entertainment where we again sort of unpacked this a little bit more and talked about how all of these integral ideas and perspectives can actually give us a more rewarding satisfying and fulfilling really um, experience of art, media, entertainment, etc. Today's episode actually grew out of those conversations. So as I was getting ready to, you know, basically write up a piece for the Inhabit Your Entertainment discussion, um, out popped sort of these eight perspectives. And it's all framed in terms of how to look at a particular piece of art or a particular object. And I like this frame because I think it, it helps keep things simple. Because, you know, when you read Ken's writing about these perspectives, about these, you know, they're called zones. Um, it's, I mean, again, it's a lot of heavy lifting stuff. It's deeply cognitive. You have to learn big words like autopoiesis. <laughs> a little secret. No one knows what autopoiesis means. Now, Bruce knows what autopoiesis means, but it's not a common term. And it's kind of hard to use a term like that to make these perspectives a little bit more friendly, um, which I think is what we're hopefully going to achieve today is making these a little bit more friendly, a little bit more accessible to people. So I started sketching out sort of, you know, let what, what happens, what are the different perspectives that we can take on a given work of art? So let's say we put something on the table in front of you, uh, in front of us, in between us, and we all enact that piece of art or that object or whatever it is. Here are eight simple ways 
to enact this work of art that is going to provide more meaning, more insight, more beauty, more connection. Um, and again, just a more fulfilling experience of whatever it happens to be that we're, we're looking at at any given moment. So that's kind of where this conversation came from. Um, and in terms of where we go from here, you know, I'm thinking what we do is we just spend a little bit of time describing each zone. Um, give sort of an experiential view of it. Um, Bruce, I think that you can give us a little bit more of a sort of some academic grounding for how these perspectives are used and how they can be useful for us. Um, and we'll just kind of take it from there. Does that sound good, guys? Sounds good to me. Word. Great. All right. Well, let's start sort of where everybody starts in the upper left quadrant. Yeah. So the upper left quadrant, the basic idea here is that all of these quadrants have an inner and an outer. And what that simply means is we can look at each of these quadrants from a first person point of view or from a third person point of view. So let's talk about what that means in terms of the upper left quadrant, which is the quadrant of our interior individual consciousness. Well, if we're looking at a piece of art, you know, I think that there's two things that really sort of um, get lit up for us, which is, you know, the first one is zone one, the inner of the upper left. What does that mean? That basically just means my actual phenomenological experience, the states of consciousness that I feel, um, sort of the emotional states that I feel, whatever sort of the contents of your awareness are as you're engaging with a work of art. So a, a common question that we would ask ourselves, a zone one question that we would ask ourselves is what is my immediate in the moment experience of this artwork? What emotional or spiritual states is it evoking for me? So does that make sense why that is a, a, a first person? It's, it's, it's technically a first person view of our first person, <laughs> right? Which again is, is a bit of a mouthful, but I want to make this a little bit more intuitive for people. So right now, as people are watching us, and I'll let you guys unpack this in a sec. Right now, as people are watching us, they're having an experience, Right. And part of that experience comes from whatever we happen to be talking about. Part of that experience comes from whatever the, you know, surrounding, whatever moods and attitudes and all that, that, that people arrive to this conversation with. But right now you're feeling something. Maybe you're feeling confused about the conversation. Maybe you're feeling excited to understand more. Maybe you're feeling a little bit cranky because you didn't get enough sleep last night or you had too much sugar yesterday or whatever it is. All of this is leaving a phenomenological sort of experience that you can register right now in the moment. And the same is true when we're watching art or looking at art, engaging art. Bruce, feel free to, I, I, I jibber jabber here all the time. So feel free to chime in with your thoughts on, on zone one. I was thinking really, it, it makes sense to get a good sense for zone one in contrast with zone two in the sense that one, when we're talking about taking the first person and you know third person perspectives, I find that it sometimes lead, even though that's technically correct, it, it mm -hmm. sometimes leads into confusion if we really want to keep it simple. I just say the inside and the outside of the interiors and exteriors, right? Mm -hmm. And which you've already said, but just doing that, it, it keeps it simpler. When you start getting into the third person, you know, it, it's a little bit harder to track in my opinion sometimes, especially if you want to keep it really intuitive. But yeah, in terms of the, you know, the first person, the inside of the interior, basically it's, you don't have to do anything special to get there, right? Mm -hmm. In a way that's immediately presenting itself. 
And that's why I wanted to contrast it with zone two is that you do have to do something a little bit special in order to be able to pick up on the outside of the interior. Mm. And so I can say something now or you can, but I, I think you'll unpack it too as you get into that. The, the shorthand part of that is just synchronically right now in immediate time and immediate presence, we're in the inside of the interior, right? That's what we're experiencing immediately. We only really get a sense for the outside of the interior diachronically uh, across time. We've got to kind of be able to notice trend lines in pattern, you know, in experience over time. And then that helps us pick up on patterns and structures and things like that. So it, you can't very easily just sit here and, and get your outside of your interior. Right. Um, you need mm -hmm. to, you can, you can engage in some thoughtful reflection or read your journals or things like that, but it, mm -hmm. there's a, some extra steps needed. Right. Yeah. I, I think uh, it makes sense to Bruce about contrasting these two. Cause as I think about it, I'm contrasting them already in my head in order to talk about both of them. So if we can just, I don't know if we you, just do that. Do you guys want me to get through zone two and then we can, and yeah, then we can. Unpack yeah, yeah, sure. I think sure. that would make sense in this one. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So if zone one is the inner of the upper left, again, our immediate direct experience right now, then zone two involves some of the sort of unconscious factors that we have, that, that we all possess. So zone two would be noticing the shapes and the patterns of mind, right? That actually determine how we think or feel about the art. So it's not just what we think or feel, it's sort of what, what are the containers? What are the unconscious psychological containers that influence and sh give shape to our experience in the moment? So this involves things like, you know, what stages, what intelligences are, you know, this particular piece of artwork or this object, uh, what are they lighting up for me? Um, what shadows are getting triggered for me when I'm looking at a particular piece of art? Um, so that's basically it. What stages, intelligence, typology, shadows, et cetera, is this artwork lighting up within me? So for me, one of the easy ways that I can sort of distinguish between zone one and zone two, our immediate experience versus sort of our structures, our structural aspects to our consciousness, is it's really states and stages, Right. I mean, our states of consciousness are all zone one experiences. They're all sort of undeniably real right now in the moment. Right. Whereas our structures of consciousness, as Ken often says, we can't see these things from sitting on a cushion. We can't see these things from, you know, any number of these sort of, uh, you know, consciousness focused practices that we might have. It actually requires another perspective in order to sort of look at our interiors and track them over time. So basically zone one is what's conscious to us at any given moment. And then zone two is sort of this big ocean of our individual unconscious. And I think the idea here is that art can light both of these up at the same time. I mean, our most direct experience of art is obviously going to be a zone one experience. That's what presents itself to us. We have a reaction in the moment to a piece of art. But then if we sit with that reaction a little bit more, we can sort of get a sense of, you know, what are the, the shapes of mind that are causing this reaction, that are allowing this reaction to sort of emerge uh, at this moment right now? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I was thinking, because uh, I, I tend to work with people, you know, in uh, training groups and then private sessions and mostly in the realm of 
meditation and Dharma, but also we do, you know, over at Buddhist Geeks, we'll, we have our integral Dharma mm-hmm. trainings. So I'm always looking at it from that perspective of like working with somebody and um, from, you know, the waking up perspective, zone one is just like that thing of constantly saying you, you don't have to do anything in order to have this direct experience of awareness of presence, you know, but what we do is we turn it into kind of a zone two-ish kind of thing. That's funny. It's like we're relating to it as this object that we're trying to see. And then you have to give that up in order to be able to directly see it. Uh, but then on the other hand, in terms of like cleaning up, um, it's actually noting over and over again, what's happening in that zone one to be able to expose the patterns in zone two, whether they're trauma patterns, you know, uh, or even deeper in a certain way that's harder to see those structures, you know? Um, and that's even trickier though, still to, to this day, I'm not, I've not really seen techniques that are just overwhelmingly the ticket in order to reliably, consistently, predictably do X, Y, Z, and then you'll expose your current level of, of development. Um, but, you know, like with Robert Keegan's work of, of writing down the assumptions you have about reality and then reality testing them is sort of like that. Like, well, here's what I know in my direct experience. And now I'm going to try to take a step back and look at those things and see if I notice a pattern. Um, so, and in this context, we're talking about art, which is really interesting. So, you know, we talk about art, bringing us into a very direct experience, you know, um, Rothko is obviously one of the very popular artists, you know, almost maybe go so popular to a cliche sense, you know, like maybe targets printing up Rothko's, I don't know, but still really profound artist that like was all about invoking state experiences, you know, um, immediately directly. But it's interesting to look at art as, as helping us notice patterns. Mm. And, you know, Corey, to your point of like looking at an artist like uh, Trent Reznor, you mm. know, takes a long arc to, sure. to look at an artist and see how they're going through the process and then how might that process affect us as we're listening and growing with that art. And I imagine, you know, if you're listening to Nine Inch Nails and all of a sudden they, you know, you put out a new album that's a little deeper and you're like, that might jolt something. I'm like, wait a minute, what? I thought we were just gonna be pissed off and at the world and now you're not like, what the hell? And maybe that will evoke an awareness of the outer of, of you know, in zone two. Well, so some, my initial thoughts. <laughs> yeah, great thoughts. Bruce, do you have any, any comments you wanna share? Yeah, I thought that was great. And I was just going to ask what you feel just about the general distinction between the I and the me in that, you know, the the zone one is the I and the me is more like the distal self, mm-hmm. which is your past self. And sometimes mm. art can invoke, you know, immediate feelings, but art, art can also bring up perfume <laughs> clouds from, from your past selves, you know, and really, you know, help you see, you know, yourself in different periods or, you know, uh, you know important stages that you've inhabited before. Um, you know, David mm-hmm. Bohm says that we're always living, you know, we, not only are we thinking, we're always living in a cloud of thoughts and felts, these kind of echoes of things that we've felt and thought before that just keep repeating. Right. And so some art, you know, especially mm-hmm. some postmodern art, I think really tries to poke at that and, and, and point to kind of the habitual subjectivities that we all inhabit, which could be a zone two kind of apprehension. Yeah, no, that's, that's, that's beautifully said. And it's, and it's an interesting point because, you know, I, I sort of, I differentiate between sort of an immediate aesthetic experience, right. That I'm having from a given work of art versus something that I might just call my, my overall tastes, 
right? And my tastes aren't necessarily defined by my sort of direct phenomenological experience. Like I might have tastes for types of art that make me uncomfortable in my immediate experience. But like there's, it, there's something about it that resonates. There's something about the cosmic address of this piece of art. It's zone two cosmic address resonates for whatever reason with mine. And it can go the other way too. Like I know that, that there, there is media um, there are entire genres of media that I tend to avoid because it triggers zone two shadow material for me, right? right. I don't like, um, uh, you know, a heavy sort of or horror movies or things like that because they're actually, they're triggering a, a heaviness that is already, um, that I already have wrapped up in shadow <laughs> within my own zone too, based on my own personal experience. So I can feel an avoidance there because there are certain kinds of art that just don't land in my zone too very well. So I, I, I push it away and I, I tend to avoid it. And Ryan, I loved your point about cleaning up because it's, it's, it's really interesting, right? Where the path of waking up is largely a zone one sort of set of practices. The path of growing up is largely a zone two set of practices, mm -hmm. but cleaning up sort of sits right on this line because cleaning mm -hmm. up is when we're taking material, unconscious material out of zone two, we're mm -hmm. bringing it into zone one, making it an object of consciousness, mm -hmm. right? Actually sort of re-internalizing it and then putting it away, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? And we kind yeah. of put it back into the, into mm -hmm. the zone two background where hopefully it's not going to sabotage us as much or it's not yeah, going to yeah. as much pain. Well, and we were, uh, one way to say is we have more available for zone one experiences, actually, when we reintegrate um, unconscious parts of ourselves, you know, there's more fullness in zone one. Um, and actually, you know, in this arc of art and the, the other episodes we've done, um, and, you know, in Inhabit, we're, we're, we've always been leaning towards something embodied, grounded, practical, you know, so that mm -hmm. way we can really live, you know, everything we talk about in integral. And I think art actually is one of the, one of the best I don't know, examples or tools to, for growing up uh, because it's just so hard to see. And especially as adults. So Ken, I think he gives an example of like, you know, for uh, child development about like one day you just stop playing with those toys, you know, you move on kind of thing. But as adults, it, it starts appearing like it's just one continuous unchanging journey. Like we've arrived and this is how psychology is in the past has treated adult development, but you can easily look, I mean, for me, going back through music and movies and television mm -hmm. shows through the last 20 years and see what was I really into at that time. And then what's my experience of it now? And if I go, Ugh, I want to watch this, like, why? You know, why? It's like, oh, well, because I was acting out my shadows that I hadn't integrated yet, or because I was less developmentally mature. And at that time, and that doesn't mean that like everything we have to experience is like, oh, it's so mature. I'm just meaning like, you know, there's a general gravity of like what we appreciate. So perhaps it's one of the best mirrors for growing up in an interesting way, because I, if I try to think about something else readily available to show me in a mirror mm -hmm. sort of way of my own development and where I'm at, where I've been, it's hard to find except music and, and movies pretty easy. Yeah. No, it's interesting. You're, you're, if, you, if you go through sort of all the previous incarnations of your tastes, <laughs> right? Yeah. It's, it, it's it almost like it's almost like an archaeology of self. You know what yeah. I mean? Like I can I can get a sense of what my patterns and shapes of mind were based yep. on the kinds of art that I was attracted to. And then I can take that next step and be like, yes. okay, so there's that inertia behind me. How right. is that presenting itself 
today. I think yeah. this is also why for a lot of the art we really deeply love and you know creates a lot of value in our lives, this is why we're able to continue growing into that art yeah. as we continue to mature, right? Because there's yeah. actually what's maturing here is, is our zone two sort yeah. of the, these factors that are under the hood mm -hmm. of our consciousness, right? Yeah. I was just thinking like um, that, that funny experience, which I don't have hard, hardly anymore, but like if you meet somebody from your past long time ago, maybe someone from high school or something like that kind of thing. And if they are still just exactly into the exact same stuff they were at that time and you were, and then it's kind of, it's kind of weird. It's kind of like, huh, nothing yeah. new, just literally the same movies and same music and art. Well, wow. That's, we can feel that disconnect, you know? And it's not to say that like, Hey, I, there's plenty of things like you throw on Ace Ventura. Guess what? I'm still going to really enjoy it. It's a stupid ass movie, but, but if that was like only the extent of my maturity, then you'd be a little worrisome. Right. Right. <laughs> yep. That's true. All right. Well, that's basically zone one and two. If there's anything else we want to say um, about this, I mean, you know, again, this is this is oftentimes um, sort of the the cornerstone and the capstone of our artistic experience, because so much of this occurs within, obviously, our direct and immediate consciousness. Hmm. Um, and I think once we have a good sense of that, we can move on to uh, the lower left quadrant. One thing I would just throw in, um, yeah, 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 not to take us on too much of an aside, but there's something about states impacting what you're experiencing in zone one and two also, mm. and you know that the shifting the states will actually change what's showing up and how you feel about what's showing up. Right. And one thing that's I'm bringing that up for is. Uh, from a meditation experience, since I'm here with a Buddhist geek, I'd like to you know, <laughs> bring it in. But yeah. uh, I was on a intensive retreat in uh, Malaysia on Penang Island, a Vipassana retreat there. And I remember the teacher mentioned the farther that you proceed in this path, the less you're going to care about music. It's going to just come across your screen of consciousness as unrelated, disjointed um, sounds that are just vanishing and that, that the thread of music will fall apart for you. And that's why we don't even focus on music here. That was one of the things that moved me to a different path <laughs> after that conversation with him. Right. But I did find later that after actually deepening in certain state experiences, some kinds of music, uh, for whatever reason, they did fail to land subjectively for me anymore mm -hmm. where before they would. And now it just sounded like very uh, cardboard going through the motion gestures that are meant. You could see, Oh, emotion is supposed to be evoked here and mm -hmm. <laughs> nothing yeah. happening. Yeah. Um, totally. That's a good, good point. Yeah. Because so much for at least, you know, being uh, generalizing here, you know, there, there's a, big arc of the path that is deconstruction you know it's deconstructing and and loosening the grip on experience and then later having it reintegrate and reemerge. but it's it's so hard to, to uh, assess all of this out because it's all happening at once you know so like the state you know state experiences awakening can like totally change how we feel energetically about a piece of music like we feel the deeper energy of it the deeper state experiences about it and it just doesn't land for us you know and um 
Yeah, it is really interesting that taking apart and putting back together again and what what still shows up and what's just disappears. Yeah. Yeah. Cool. Hmm. Yeah. Well, hopefully that was useful for people in terms of just differentiating, yeah. discerning the aspects of our, you know, individual consciousness that are fully available to us right now versus those aspects that just aren't, that we know aren't, that are just part of our unconscious and they're always kind of ticking along in the background, right? Giving shape to our phenomenological mm. experiences mm. in the moment. So hopefully mm. that's that's helpful for people. Mm. And now we can make a transition to the lower left quadrant. And I think that this is another sort of um it's this is another area where it's probably a little bit easy for people to intuitively grasp the difference between the inner of the lower left and the outer of the lower left. And one of the examples that I commonly use to to help sort of, you know, foreground the 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 difference here is have you ever walked in on someone else's inside joke? Right? So you're, 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 you're hanging out with a bunch of friends. Your friends tell an inside joke. You feel like an outsider. You know that they have a shared mm -hmm. context here that you are outside of. You cannot take a first-person view of their context because you're not a part of it. You can only look at it from the outside. So we feel this, and, and obviously these kind of exist in, you know, concentric circles. I mean, you can be on the inside of, you know, sort of one lower left circle and the outside of, of many, many others. Or you can share an inside, like, for example, all of us here today, we all speak English, right? So we all mm -hmm. have a, a basic sort of lower left um, uh, bubble that we sit in that we can share. And yet, Ryan, I have a different relationship with you than I have with Bruce. And if I start telling certain kinds of jokes, Ryan, that <laughs> you and I have shared over the years, that's yeah. going to land one way. And same if I, right. if I, you know, joke around with you, Bruce, it's going to land in another. And our audience is not going to be able to follow any of that. So, mm -hmm. you know, actually sort of minding our, our zone three and four containers, I think it's, it's really important. And this is where a lot of you know, things like skillful means and, and knowing how to play to your audience, for example. This is where a lot of this comes in. So let me just describe real briefly um, the simplest, I think the simplest distinctions between zone three or, and zone four, and then we can unpack this a little bit. So zone three is the inside of the lower left, the inner of the lower left, which means the shared meaning and the experience that you have with other people in this case, around a, you know, a particular artwork, as well as with the artist him or her herself. So a question that you would ask here in zone three is, how are other people experiencing and interpreting this artwork? How do their experiences and interpretations influence my own? How would I respond to this artwork if the artist was standing right in front of me right now? Zone four, on the other hand, is the outer of the lower left. This is how we sort of are able to appreciate how this piece of art fits into, you know, larger cultural contexts or simply different cultural contexts. Um, we might ask, you know, we might consider how uh, a given piece of art impacts, um, you know, all of the sort of unspoken rules and permissions and taboos that shape our discourse. So, when we have these kinds of conversations, there's, there's an inner and an outer to it. And the inner is basically consists of everything that we actually share and relate with each other. And the outer is sort of like, you know, again, this, this, this unspoken set of, of, of rules and permissions where if you transgress that, you're going to get some fairly immediate feedback. Um, and in fact, stand-up comics, I think, make their home <laughs> in zone four. They make their home in trying to figure out exactly where those lines are drawn 
and trying to figure out if we can push that line in one way or the other. And sometimes they push too far and, you know, their career suffers as a result. And other times the really masterful comics in our culture are able to at least bring these sorts of lines and taboos, et cetera, into consciousness, if not sort of subversively push them out a little bit more. So common zone four questions are going to be, what are the cultural currents or patterns that this artwork is trying to hold a mirror to? How resonant or subversive is this artwork? Is it playing it safe or is it pushing the edge? How would this artwork be enacted across multiple different cultures and contexts? So if I took this artwork out of our English speaking American context and dropped it into, I don't know, Pakistani culture, how would it play? That requires a zone four perspective, right? In order to get a sense of that. Hmm. Bruce, does this math check out? Makes sense to me. Yeah, I think you put it well. And it was just putting me in mind of, you know, if, if you've ever taken a journey through, you know, different world music traditions and tried to expose yourself to very different types of music, for instance, um, you can really be confronted with that inside outside joke, the inside outside meaningful resonance thing. Mm -hmm. you know, and, and for instance, I can think of, you know, some forms of Korean music that I've listened to or um, Japanese or Indonesian or other kinds of music where when you listen to it, there can be a zone one response, an emotional response arising. Um, but there's also can, uh, like an aura of puzzlement around what are they trying to recreate here? What is the meaning that they're wanting to share? Because sometimes it really shows up as very alien. There's you know, some uh, Korean styles of music that when I was first exposed to them, it sounded like they were taking a long surf on very depressive currents, <laughs> um, really deeply depressive mood that they were drawing out with their sounds. But it was totally puzzling. How am I supposed to relate to this? I couldn't get the inside cultural bead on what they were weaving. Mm. And you can only do that by familiarizing, by, by basically learning the language, right? Learning the shared language, whatever that language happens to be, that is being used to enact this art within a particular culture. Um, Ryan, I'm sure you've got some thoughts about this as sort of the, you know, the, the language expert that you are. You've got a, a deep passion for yeah. language itself. And yeah. I'm sure that you have felt this, this sort of mm -hmm. the line in the sand that separates yeah, yeah, yeah. zone four as people are, you know, becoming more fluent. Well, yeah. And, you know, the biggest thing where this shows up is humor. So and I'm, mm. for me, humor, comedy is one of the art forms. And um, yeah, so one of my teachers, my, my favorite version of Spanish is Mexican Spanish. It's just to me, there's just the, the slang of, of Mexico's brilliance. Uh, but we'll, uh, with one of my teachers, we'll share different humorous things from both the cultures and some things that are really funny in Spanish. You can't really translate into English and vice versa, like Key and Peele, uh, you know, is just one of the. Oh, actually, no, I, I talk with them about our, our, our clip on Team America. Yeah, uh, that we shared in that in that episode. And um, just because the words have double meanings that work for us, like asshole means a part of the body, but it means like a person who's <laughs> mean, not cool or whatever, or, you know, whatever we might say with that. In that context, it meant red, amber, yeah. altitude. Yeah, yeah, and it meant something, even more meanings, right? But they don't have that same word in, in Spanish doesn't mean those multiple things. So you can see that like really quickly humor breaks down and it can be one of the hardest things to get. That's like the last thing you get in learning a language because you have to really 
immerse yourself in that um, zone three, really it's a zone three and you're trying to find it through like zone four. And I don't know where we, where you put grammar and things like this, but it's really, uh, really interesting. And, you know, I was going to say also with the differentiation between zone three and zone four. Um, well, even with, maybe with zone four in particular, um, so in one version of art, to me, it's validating. And you said resonating. So that's one thing. And I think of the Enneagram, for example, which is not art, but it's often a crowd pleaser. If somebody comes to it, they're just like, oh yeah, tell me about myself. And you're objectifying yourself in a certain right. sense. You remember the first time I came across Enneagram four and you know, that's what I am. And I was like, oh yeah, it's validating. So art can be like that where it's validating, even though we're seeing, you know, we're seeing the the outer of what was only inner you know before yeah. that moment and um uh but then as soon as we make something outer inevitably we're distancing ourselves from that because we're no longer completely identified with these unspoken structures of culture and shared meaning um and then you know it can be disturbing or disruptive you know because we're, we're something is shaken loose and um, and I think that's what the art that gets most attention in the kind of zone four area is like, what is shaking shit up? And that's yep. often what's happening. But the validating thing, I think, is totally happening all the time. We just don't talk about it very much because it's just, you know, pleasant and whatnot. Mm -hmm. But what's interesting here, too, is that, like, if you look at this, so, like, if you have disruptive art, like, I don't know, some forms of graffiti or something like that, or just a new art form that's just like, we're going to do something totally different. It's going to make everybody uncomfortable. For that artist and the people who really, really appreciate that, that's actually not disruptive to them. They have a, that's their shared meaning is like, this is the art we create. And so it, it's not disruptive for them. It's disruptive for other people who don't, aren't in that shared developmental level or whatever it might be. So it's interesting how these things just keep cycling, you know, in terms of alternating between what is subject as a, as a we and what is uh, object. Yeah, Ryan, that's, I think a critical point here is that again, these are not boxes on a piece of paper. These are not sort of discrete categories. In other words, all of these zones sort of have a way of bleeding into each other and creating feedback loops with each other. They yeah. dance. All of these zones are constantly dancing with each other. Yeah. And it's yeah. one thing to kind of press the pause button on reality, right? And yeah. say, okay, well, this is, this is all clearly zone three phenomena. This is zone four. Here's, you yeah. know, and really kind of separate and tease things apart. But once you hit that play button again, and the yeah. universe is in motion again, yeah. And all of these things start to, again, bleed into each other and yeah. <laughs> create these resonances and, and disruptions and feedback loops and so forth. Yeah, yeah. That's why, like, in my uh, intro to integral theory that I uh, gave a talk on at Buddhist Geeks, and that video is online, 30-minute talk is my best version of 30 minutes. I start off with a quote from Hokai Sobel, a tweet he had that, don't worry, it's just everything and everyone happening all at once. And that's always really important to never forget that. Like we're, it's really useful to distinguish this rather than making it a, a big blob of, you know, without any distinctions, that's horrible. But like, you know, when we distinguish the stuff, then we got to like, let that go and realize it's all happening at once. And that's really important. Okay. Um, the other the last thing I want to say about this is like in terms of art, and we talked about this a bit, I think in the uh, one we did on uh, movies, but this is in in the, in the lower left zone three and four is where I often will feel the distinction between, especially in documentaries where somebody wish wants, or no, it's even worse in, in, in fictional content where somebody wants to talk at me. They want to get on a soapbox and tell me stuff rather than create a shared artistic experience, like immerse me in the shared meaning, the shared journey. And then at the end, I step back and say, 
wow, what happened? The, the experience changed me or solidified something. And you can always tell that like what happens there when somebody is trying to create this piece of art in a, in a lower left kind of manner, but what they end up doing is not creating art and they're just talking at you which doesn't feel good. And, you know, documenting some people, it's kind of like, uh, like Bill Burr says, go to I'm, I'm right.com. And like a documentary is like, yeah, tell me all the things I already know. And uh, then that feels good. But for me, it's not great art. Right. <laughs> right. Cause the documentary is not trying to form a relationship with you. Exactly. You're, you're and lower left is a relational dimension. It's a relational dimension. Right. Um, right. I have to go talk to the tree guys real quick. Yeah, I'll be talk right to back. The tree guys and, and Bruce and I'll wrap a little bit. <laughs> okay. But, you know, another, another example of, of this, where we can, I think see all four, of these zones that we've talked about so far kind of, you know, at play with each other is just in some of our favorite bands, musicians, artists uh, that we've, you know, acquired throughout our lives. So like, for example, one of my favorite hip hop bands ever is a band called Black Alicious. Um, unfortunately, the MC for Black Alicious, his name was Gift of Gab. Uh, he passed away just a couple weeks ago, uh, which was deeply sad. And I was, I was really, I was really shaken by his, by his passing. Um, not only because he was super young, he was only 50 years old and he just had uh, two kidney transplants and, you know, we were all very excited for his, his recovery. And mm -hmm. um, unfortunately he ended up passing. But when I think about, you know, my love for this group, where does this love really, really come from? Well, it comes from, you know, I was in my twenties when I discovered Black Alicious. This was at a point when I, my, my spirituality, my spiritual self, my awakening path was really beginning to present itself to me in a very, very strong and powerful and insistent way. And yet I didn't have a lot of role models out there to emulate, right? I hadn't yet discovered, you know, I mean, I think I, I, I was into Ken, but that still felt like a very sort of small community that was supporting what he was doing. And I wasn't seeing much of this represented in the culture around me at all. Uh, and then I found this group where, you know, not only did they make me my, in my zone one, I, I felt these states, right? I was like, oh, I'm able to recontact these states for myself just by listening to your music, which, oh, by the way, I'm tremendously attracted to because you're making music that's appealing to my, you know, these zone two factors that I have, right? But then there was that next step. It was not only is there an artist that's actually giving voice to sort of these unseen parts of myself, but that artist is then in turn being selected for in culture. These guys are finding popularity, which means I'm not the only one who sees something in what they're doing. And that is validating. That I think gets to, to, to Ryan's point. This is validating. Like, oh my God, I'm not going crazy. Other people experience this. And what was useful for me, Bruce, was that it wasn't just someone like me having similar set of experiences, but here's someone from a completely different cultural background, right? These are, this is, uh, you know, someone who's 10 years older than me, African-American, lived on, grew up on the West Coast. I grew up on the East Coast. So, you know, a, a different set of cultural experiences. And yet these same, what felt to me like universals were being expressed through that different context. So in a way, sort of that, that shared and differing lower left context between zone three and zone four helped allow the art to resonate more deeply with me to the point where, you know, 25 years later, they continue to be one of my all-time favorite artists. That's and it's really from that resonance. Exactly. Yeah, I was thinking about, do you ever watch, I think you do, I think we both kind of confess to each other that we have the 
secret vice of watching reaction videos sometimes. Yeah, uh, definitely I do. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, in the, of course, in, in the music community, you know, often the, like with uh, Dimash Kudaiberg and, you know, all of his, all the, his followers are the deers, you know, or Lady Gaga, you know, mm -hmm. has them, you know, they form a tribe, you know, they form this cultural movement and a tribe. And I was thinking about perspectively, what's interesting about what's going on with reaction videos, there's kind of a, between what's going on among most of the audience members maybe, and what's going on with the reactors. But on the one hand, we're, we're vicariously enjoying their enjoyment or their reaction to that. But I think it's, you know, there's a, a they, they refer to the reaction channel membership as family. There's a, definitely a sense of kinship that we're all enjoying taking this musical journey together. Mm -hmm. But they're entering the first person experience of, of in, encountering that music for the first time. And for many in the audience, I think it's almost a zone two thing in that it's, it's showing us our me of what I was like and what I felt when I first encountered that thing, totally. encountered that piece of music. Yep. No, that's that's a great example. And just just so our audience knows exactly what we're talking about. So we're talking about those videos where you have like two hip hop guys listening to Megadeth or there's other versions where you have two like metal heads listening to like K-pop. Right. Yeah, exactly. And, and, and describing their reactions. And it is really interesting because, Bruce, I think that actually shows how we can simultaneously share these zone three containers at one sort of concentric level and also be sitting outside of them at another level because you know where there's a shared sort of reality is god we all love music right someone comes into this with a good faith kind of you know kind of uh, posture where like i'm going to expose myself to new music because i love music and i'm sure there's going to be something in these new experiences that i love however i'm going to be listening to things that are sort of outside of my idiom Right. And that idiot, your idiom is defined in zone three. Well, I mean, I'm going to take that back that your idiot. I mean, there's unconscious elements to your idiom as well that are that are sort of being reinforced in zone four. So just to make this, you know, maybe a political example is actually going to help people a little bit with this. I often think about it in terms of the zone three is whatever happens to be discussed among a group of people at any given point in time right? Those conversations can span any number of topics and territories and so forth. And yet surrounding that conversation is something we might call an Overton window. This is something we hear about a lot in politics. Some, you know, Donald Trump comes along and he swings the Overton window. What does that mean? That means he's actually changing our zone four structures, changing the permission sets the unspoken permission sets that we share so that something that was taboo to talk about yesterday is no longer taboo to talk about today. And this reshapes again, because these things bleed into each other that then, you know, changes how I relate in the upper left quadrant, both in terms of my direct zone one experience and my zone two sort of structures. Um, it all gets kind of bent whenever one of these factors in any one of these zones changes so does everything else because this is always tetra emerging or octa emerging, whatever, whatever metaphor we want to use here. But I like, I think the political example helps a little bit because there's a lot of these terms that um, 
get thrown around a lot. And if we just take a closer look at it, we can actually see how this is actually delineating these eight primary perspectives for us, which again, just gives, you know, that much more proof to the idea that we're already always taking these perspectives. We just don't necessarily know it when we are. Right. And I think that becomes huge in the next quadrant. So should, should we shift to the upper right quadrant? Yeah, let's go. This is, this is one where um, I struggled a little bit, Bruce, and I was, I was very grateful for um, the time that we spent together sort of hashing this out. It's not that I had a hard time taking the perspective. I had a hard time communicating sort of the simplicity of, the, of this perspective, and that's the zone five perspective. So let me talk about the difference first, and then we can unpack this a little bit, because I think this is, this is actually a really, really profound one. So the upper right quadrant, this is when we're looking at something from the outside, an individual object or holon or what have you from the outside. So we're looking at a person, a frog, a, you know, or, or a set of signifiers such as an artwork, right? We're looking at it sort of objectively. Um, so here we have two zones. The inner of the upper right is called zone five. And basically what this is, Let's, let's, let's continue talking about looking at a piece of art. If we're looking at a piece of art, the zone five question is basically gonna be a reconstruction of the artist's interiors based on whatever it is that we happen to be looking at, right? So here's this artwork, here are the forms of the artwork, here is sort of the colors that they use or the sounds that they put together, the, the, the tonalities, you know, all this stuff that we can look at in third person. What does this mean? The, as soon as we ask the question, what does this mean? We're taking a zone five perspective, right? Especially if we're basing that question purely on what we see, how the art is presenting itself to me right now. Well, what does that mean? Well, we have to take, we have to reconstruct someone's interiors. This is, you know, oftentimes when you think of the upper right quadrant, we think of it in terms of zone six, just a third person, completely objective view. Let's just describe sort of how it works, how it behaves, et cetera. Um, and that's sort of as, you know, as, as objective as we possibly can get. That's a zone six perspective. So that would be viewing the artwork as a self-contained whole, appreciating its objective forms and features, as well as the skills, talents, techniques, and performance from the artist that was required in order to produce it in the first place. But this is all, we're not asking questions like, what does it mean? We're not bringing any first person sort of awareness to that. We're just looking at it objectively. But the minute we start asking the question, what does this artwork actually mean based on the forms that I see in front of me right now? Now we're taking a zone five perspective. And zone five is, is profound for reasons we'll talk about in a minute because it's a perspective we are always, always taking without knowing it. And that's why it was so hard for me to figure out how to communicate it. Exactly. Yeah. When we were first talking about it also, I was thinking about it in its more advanced forms and thinking that this comes on pretty late. Um, but the more that we went through it and tried to simplify it, the more apparent it became that this is actually something that begins to surface in us even you know, very early, um, even as soon as we're able to take a, a theory of other minds. Right. Um, yeah, there's another, there's another way of framing the zone five that I talked to you about, which I think is more tentative, mm -hmm. but, um, and it, I think it's hard to make a, a whole discipline out of it. 
But for me, if zone five is defined as basically the inside of an exterior mm -hmm. and we arrive at the inside through a process of reconstruction mm -hmm. based on our observations of exterior elements. And a good example of this is something like Von Wexkel's biosemiotics, where you know, he will look at different organisms and then attempt to reconstruct their experiential world based on their ecological niche and their equipment, you know, and, and whatever we know about the organism and their environment and what is important to them, you know, we can begin to reconstruct what is the experiential world mm -hmm. of, of, you know, that being. And of course, we can do it as we talked about with, with other people too, looking at them from the outside and trying to imagine what's the world like for them based on what I can see from the outside. So that relates to what you're saying about, you know, trying to get at what the artist's interior was like in the creation of that piece of work. But there's also, you know, something I wanted to highlight, which is that sometimes the work itself seems to have a kind of interiority. It doesn't have a conscious agency, like mm -hmm. it's, you know, a living, you know, fully developed sentient being, but there's a aura to it that I think I used the word with you, a kind of mana that comes out of it. I think you said um, mana funk. Yeah. Funk. Yeah. <laughs> Which there's I a funk to it. Mana funk to it. Um, there's some quality of presence that manifests from the artwork that sometimes you can't even directly trace at least consciously to the artist's intent. Right. Um, it may not, you know, it happens in the magic of the proportions and the, and the interplay of the elements that there is some kind of power that comes through it that you can subjectively feel. Um, that's not your feeling. It's a communication. You know, you, you have subjective states and reaction to an object, but also you can sense sometimes an emanation from a piece of music or from an object that seems to be its own, you know, powerful, uh, scintillating presence. Yeah. Yeah. And may, and maybe this is associated with subtle energies, um, which again can get a little bit tricky to, to talk about. Um, maybe it's just a matter of proportions, like you're saying. I mean, there's sometimes you look at a landscape and it has that mana funk to it. Now, no one cre there was no artist. There was no agent that created you know, a sunset as, as an artifact, for example, this is sort of just a naturally organically occurring process. And yet even there, there can be a radiance. There can be, it feels almost like a communication, but there's not necessarily an agent behind it. There's just a, a transmission. Um, and it can be hard to put your finger on what that feels like, looks like, tastes like, um, other than, yeah, there's just sort of a funk, a glow, a spark, a certain, a lore, maybe a, a, a life force, but in a different way than we usually mean that in sort of, you know, when it comes to biology and, and, and such. Um, and it's mysterious. And it's, it's, and it's, as you say, it's hard to, um, it's hard to talk about because you can't quite put it into a bottle. Hmm. Right. But the other aspects of zone five, this is where we, I think really can. And I love that you mentioned biosemiotics because um, just to show that this is stuff that comes online fairly early in our development, or at least it can come online fairly early in our development. Just last week, I was having a conversation with my daughter, who's eight years old, 
And we were basically asking, what is it like to be this animal versus that animal? What would it be like to be a dog, right? And I, I would frame it like this. So we know that, you know, these animals all sense reality differently. They have different sensory organs, right? So a dog is primarily reconstructing its reality based on scent, right? And a bat is mostly, you know, reconstructing its reality based on sound. And people, you know, we sort of uh, rely on, on uh, visuals, right? That's how when we close our eyes, we see a visual world. So what is it to be a dog? What is it to be a bat? And she would close her eyes and she would step into these perspectives and she would try to describe sort of, you know, what that feels like. That was an eight-year-old girl taking a zone five perspective which is profound. And again, it shows that we're doing this all the time. In fact, we do this every day on the internet, right? Whenever we're interacting with people who we don't know, we have no shared relationship with these people. It's just a, a name on a screen and a, and a you know, string of words. And then we start trying to ascribe an interior to those words. What kind of person would say something like that? What we're doing is we're reconstructing each other in zone five based only on these third person signifiers that we have. So whenever an integralist says something really stupid, like you're so green, in order to write off someone's entire you know, point of view, they are taking an irresponsible zone five perspective. And what they're not doing is recognizing that this is limited to zone five because you don't know, again, you have no relationship with these people. And rather than trying to form a relationship, rather trying to develop a shared context that would actually give you that much more, you know, traction in your assessment of each other, um, instead you just kind of jump right to labeling each other. Oh, you're so paranoid. You're so green. You're, you know, you're, you're not into whatever it might be. Um, that is a zone five sort of reconstruction of someone's interiors based on very, very limited sort of ob objective data that, that we have. And again, it's yes. something we're doing all the time. Exactly. It's very common to hear on the internet, people complaining about, oh, you're just projecting on me as if projecting on somebody was a wrong thing to be doing. But I think now we really understand that projecting is something that we're always doing. That's it's right. a zone. It's part of our zone five um, activity. It's part of the overall suite of things that we do to build relationships with others. Um, and it, so there's always this element of reconstructing and projecting. It's just we can do it better or worse. That's right. And yeah, Ryan, it reminds me of um, several episodes ago. We were talking about uh, I can't remember the episode name, but uh, it was inhabit your social media or something uh -huh, like that. Yeah. But we were basically talking about internet hygiene, yeah. right? That was sort of the basis of the show is internet hygiene. And so much of this hygiene, well, we can see how it gets kind of farmed out across all of these, all of these different perspectives. There's a zone four hygiene, there's a zone two hygiene, um, but there's mm -hmm. also this zone five hygiene where we need to be able to call ourselves out, right? And prevent ourselves from kind of sliding into um, what Bruce was talking about, sort of this pure projection, because actually oftentimes what we're doing is we're not even, we're partially taking a zone five perspective, but we're loading it up with our own zone two baggage, right? Which again, shows how these perspectives kind of bleed on each other and why we need a little bit more fluency with these perspectives in order to tell, you know, one mm -hmm. part from the other. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's interesting based on the context, uh, you know, so I wrote down some notes here um, for this upper right. Um, 
Yeah. And, you know, in the context integral community, those are the kinds of things I would say, Corey, like what you just said, because that tends to be objectively, I'm saying this is what tends to be the behavioral pattern. So I'm, I'm making an objective statement here, like an upper right kind of statement about what I see and in an inference about what I think it means about people's interiors, which I'm okay with. In a pluralistic context, there's maybe some allergy to that, you know, where it's like you can't say something objectively because all of that exists in the in cultural context, you know, and things like that. But, you know, it's kind of one of those things like, well, you know, the old saying, like if it quacks like a duck, well, that's such a, can be a cop out. Like, it's just like, I can just validate myself and being like, I'm right because I just said it quacks like a duck and that's very simple. So very, there you go. But no, but it's kind of like that. Like literally, if you hear something quacking and you see it flip flopping around, we can recognize patterns in reality as objective things and, and make an estimated guess that like that, thing that I see floating across the water. I think that's a duck. Yeah, but in the end, maybe I'm wrong. Um, but like Bruce, what you said, we can do all this better or worse. So I think in, we're, we're right now looking at upper right. So let's just lean into it. You know what I mean? So that's where I'm, it's upper right. And upper right is all about it. So what are we, what are we in here? <laughs> so for me, like just a couple of things, you know, like um, in simple terms of like art, we look at film and we can talk about the color palette, right? Mm-hmm. This is something really simple, like looking at color tones and some directors, for example, are well known for color power, like Wes Anderson, you know, like automatically look at that. That's really interesting. Automatically without just seeing the color palette and the presentation of the it of the screen, a person could be like, it's gotta be Wes Anderson. Now it could be wrong, but a lot of times you can be really right. It just, and then if you add in other things, the tonality of the delivery of, of, of the actors, like you can map that out on frequency. Like, is it more of an understated, there are a lot of understated monotone sort of ballparkish, you know, things combined with the color palette, combined with the type of music, you combine all these different it's, you can make an assumption about who that person was, including their interior. So these things we happen all the time. And of course, the bigger question, then we say, what does that evoke, you know, in us? And that is really interesting because obviously like, well, can we say the color yellow objectively evokes something in a human being? That's, that's harder. Sounds like music or, or just different kinds of sounds. Maybe we can say something like that. So if like you scrape your nails on a chalkboard, yeah, maybe someone's out there is like, ah, oh, that's so good. I love that. Keep, keep doing that. That's could very well be the case. But you could do a test and say like how many people have a visceral response that they subjectively report. We can map out their brain and say like, what activity do we see happening? Do we see a fight or flight response, you know, when nails are across the chalkboard? And so we can make some inferences, you know, about objectively like, well, this thing produces this kind of thing, a uh, response in, in the audience. Um, and, uh, and of course, all of that goes into like the thing about like, what does this mean? But at first we have to look at those initial layers and say like, for me, those are very valid. I couldn't hear. <laughs> Watch this. It is talking to me. Uh, um, yeah. So we get at the meaning, but like, that's a very valid path to say like, and that's where I think filmmakers, for example, really dive into that's what it's all about. Like, how can I use these it's to hopefully produce some range of responses in those people who are, are watching it and therefore like the re- reverse engineering, like Bruce, you were kind of talking about that reconstructing. Yeah. We can do that and say like, Oh, well, all these colors, all these sounds, like I remember in Dark Knight, one of the it's that I found fascinating was Hans Zimmer tried to find a sound to play in, in these repetitive scenes with the Joker. And he finally landed on a razor blade across um, 
strings like and like and it's really subtly under there but like you hear it and it creates a tension because usually we don't like metal scraping sounds doesn't provoke uh, evoke a relaxed state of being you know it's tense you know so uh and then the other thing bruce you mentioned something here that i wrote down like um that there's an interior to the art like an it factor to it so in the same way that we could take a psychedelic that's an it thing that's having an it <laughs> response that then has some correlates that we can predict, mm-hmm. you know, like that happening in the brain. I think that happens in, in art and music. Now with psychedelics, we can really identify that the chemistry and all this stuff and then say, well, this is what's likely happened where it's a little bit harder in, in art. But I think that's true too. There's an it aspect to it that like in and of itself, because of all these different factors and how it impacts us, we can see a reflection in our own, biochemistry that's just super it's super obvious that it happens it's not as so obvious to like how we describe um those it's and because of that last thing i'll say here Mm -hmm. is transmission so we talk you you were using different words bruce but that's the same for me the same thing is like it transmits and this is really interesting because we can talk about in in dharma like receiving transmission from teacher to student that's considered really important something happens there that's magical, mm-hmm. but we can talk about that too. And I'm, I'm a believer in this too, that like, if you see a teaching written down, it's now in an it form, it's in a book, it's ink on a piece of paper and there's words there, but it transmits. I've had that experience. Like something happened there, you know, um, that I, I'm just not going to reduce, <laughs> deconstruct and say nothing is meaningful happening there. So anyways, all this stuff comes up for me um, in, in this upper right it zone. Yeah, that's all. That's all really well said, Ryan. And, you know, it got me thinking about um, things like music theory and color theory, which I think are largely sitting on that line between zone six and zone five, because what it's saying is we expect that an a- the average person, these tones are going to produce these, you know, interior effects, right? We associate th- these with these. Now, that's not necessarily going to be true from individual to individual in terms of their actual zone one experience. But we predict that yellow on average is going to make people feel happy. Red's going to make people feel agitated. And, you know, so and light blue is going to make people feel calm. You know, so there's there's and there's the all cultural of this context sort of too. zone five work. Yeah, it's really an example of like an it thing of cultural context. So one thing. So if, if you ask the average person in the United States, uh, do people in Latin America, South America like spicy food? I guarantee you most people would say, yeah, yeah, yeah. But actually, it's it, Mexico is really a place where they really like things spicy. So a food that has a spicy effect produces a joyful response, like a, mm-hmm. a subjective response. But actually, uh, in like uh, Venezuela or Colombia, th- no, they're like, oh, no, they, they eat actually much more mild. So there's some assumptions there that like, oh, if I make a spicy food, it will produce certain subjective responses. And that, that might not be the case. So there's some cultural stuff there for sure. And that's, you know, like in the pluralist context, there is truth to that because that, because we have a lower left uh, quadrant. So it's a little harder to nail down, but like at the same time, I want to toss it all out and say that, no, no, even that cultural context, then we could objectively identify like these factors of it can produce this particular result in this group of people. Yeah. Yep. And Bruce, when we were talking, you mentioned something really interesting, which was um, reminding me that Ken Wilber had once described the integral project itself as largely a zone five project. Mm. Why don't you tell us a little bit what you think Mm. he meant by that? He didn't say it directly, actually, but uh, it was in the the afterward to the Dancing with Sophia book. 
And it was also a part of a presentation that he gave at the, I think it was the 2013 Integral Theory Conference. Um, but in there, he was talking about all of the zones and talking about critical realism and how it tends to focus on some more than others and that you need to be able to take all. Um, and then he talked about what integral involves in terms of all of the zones. But then when he actually described why it's important to take all the zones, he actually described it in terms of enactment and autopoetic play. So he actually used the language of zone five uh, to basically describe the integral project. And I think I, I used the phrase with you that, you know, that the zone five is kind of like the, the, the Klein bottle contact point <laughs> in the aqua um, matrix in that there's a kind of everything kind of loops back into zone five where, yeah, there's this notion of autopoiesis and enactment, but there's this, I think, this kind of deep intuition that we can see, you know, the, the soul of the cosmos in a sense that we, we relate to the whole cosmos as having an interior and an exterior. And that, that that's an avenue into feelingly contacting the whole display and bringing it together in integrative harmony. Uh, to me, there's a, a zone five element to working with the interior and the exterior that way in order to bring together a more coherent, um, dynamically unfolding and active evolutionary picture of reality. That's beautiful. It's a beautiful frame because, you know, Ken often says this material is psychoactive. And I think what he means by that, I just was talking about this in another show. What he means by that is that integral theory really comes with a mirror, all right? And if you're doing integral in purely third person terms, where again, you're just pushing diagrams around on a piece of paper, you're just drawing boxes and lines and, you know, sort of, it's a categorical approach to integral. It's not an, an, an enacted approach to integral. And I think that that is sort of the, the you know, the, the, that's the zone fiveness <laughs> of it, that you can't talk about these ideas without simultaneously inhabiting these ideas and sort of, you know, reflecting that mirror within. Um, and in fact, if you're not doing that, you're probably missing something really, really important here. Um, and I think it's, 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 a, it's a really good point. And I also see this, Bruce, something we talked about before the show. I also see this in terms of like, so much of our legal system is built in zone five, right? Because our, what our legal system is asking a jury to do is to look at the third person facts of a case and decide, determine whether or not the defendant intentionally, willfully transgressed, right? That's the difference between murder and manslaughter, for example. And that's a big distinction. Intent is a huge distinction when it comes to law, but you can't trust that the person you're talking to is going to be truthful about their intent. So you can only reconstruct their intent based on the third person facts and factors of the case. So the jury's presented these factors. They're given an argument to why that violates, you know, the, the laws in the lower right quadrant. And then they're left to, to determine for themselves whether this person intended to commit those crimes or, or not. And their, their punishment 
um, is going to be based largely on how much intent was in there. But figuring out that intent is purely a zone five activity because we're saying right from the beginning, I can't trust that this person is going to be completely truthful in how they present themselves to me, right? So I, I, I have to reverse engineer this from the facts that are presented to me from the lawyers, from the pro prosecution, et cetera. That's a great point. And, and when you were talking with me about that this morning, you, you gave a caveat that there's also the lower left involved in that, the intersubjective testimony. So it really seems that we're, we're weighing both. Yeah. What we can construct of the interior based on the external factors that are available to us and the testimony of reliable um, you know, witnesses and, uh, and other parties. That's and right. together, that can help us really get a good, hopefully a good sense of, of what the intent was. Yeah, I think if that if if um, if the lawyer is uh, worth their money, they're doing everything they can to make sure that the jury doesn't only have third person facts to consider the case. They're going to do their best to bring in some of these second person lower left element. They're going to bring in character witnesses, either for or against. Right. I mean, either side can bring in character witnesses again, just to help the jury form a relationship with the with the defendant. Um, rather than only judging them based on the third person sort of facts of the case. Because sometimes right. the facts of the case just are misaligned, right? They suggest something, but don't necessarily prove intent. And I mean, re someone really could have been in the wrong place at the wrong time and have a cluster fuck of circumstance that makes them look guilty. But as soon as you bring in some of these second person, lower left kind of character reinforcing perspectives, that that calculus changes a little bit and therefore our, you know, our sense of how guilty they are or how innocent they are can change. And I think this is the same thing when we're talking about how we are constantly engaging in zone five perspectives when we're talking on the internet with each other. If someone is completely anonymous, then you're really only limited to a zone five point of view. But Bruce, when you and I talk on online on Facebook or whatever, we have a whole history of relating behind us, right? So we're not only seeing each other in third person, we're also seeing each other in second person. And therefore we can have a more authentic reconstruction of each other as we go. That doesn't only exist within sort of that confinement of zone five. We can have a more authentic enactment. I get a better sense of who you are as a person because we have a shared history together. Right. And that should be the goal of anyone. So if you're watching this, next time you uh, accuse someone of being so green because you disagree with the signifiers you see in a chat window on your screen, maybe just take an opportunity to try to deepen that relationship a little bit and understand that there's a lot of iceberg underneath the surface that you have no awareness of whatsoever. And I think that this helps us be a little bit more kind, right? And maybe a little bit more patient with each other. Um, as we interact with each other on places like Facebook. Yeah, thankfully, my picture of you is not built only by the authors of uh, Integral 2.0. <laughs> Thank God for that. <laughs> That's an inside joke. <laughs> so some of our audience are feeling, uh, feeling their zone forwardness right now. Mm -hmm. um, but that's okay. We'll just leave it there. Um, so... <laughs> So let's move this into uh, the lower right quadrant. And this is, I think, another fascinating territory that has um, some really important political um, implications, I think, that we can unpack in a second. 
And in a way, this can be a little bit, again, these right-hand quadrants, these right-hand zones can be a little bit tricky at first. But I think if we sit with them long enough, then it kind of sinks in and, and it, it clicks, right? And once it clicks, you start seeing it everywhere. So the main distinctions between in the lower right quadrant is between zone seven, the inner of the lower right, and zone eight, which is the outer of the lower right. So zone seven, if you're looking at a piece of art and you want to take a zone seven perspective, some of the things you might consider would be uh, what social and systemic factors shape the artwork's creation and meaning, as well as my own experience of the artwork. So question here is, what are the conscious or unconscious social conditions and circumstances surrounding the artist that are embedded in this artwork? How does that inform the artwork itself? How does it change the meaning of the artwork itself? How do my own social circumstances influence my experience and my enactment of this artwork? So I just want to say, this is sort of the zone where we see a lot of um, the wokeism movement, for example, or the critical race theory movement. They are very, very keen on sort of these zone seven inertias, right? And how um, our perspectives can be unconsciously conditioned by the surrounding systems and circumstances that we find ourselves in and how that conditioning can itself shape or change or transform the meaning of a particular work of art with or without the artist intending that to be so, right? So this is sort of a place where a healthy Marxist point of view can start to come in. Like let's track what these sort of conditions are and then try to estimate how this shows up within an an average consciousness that's actually engaging this system, right? So what are the embedded unconscious elements? Like this is where we can talk about, you know, this artwork was, uh, was, you know, made from privilege or was made, you know what I mean? There's any number of these terms that we can start to use that actually become a little bit more useful if we locate them in this zone and much less useful when they sort of color outside of the lines and get misapplied to other zones. Um, just to finish the thought, the, you know, the cycle before we, we unpack it a little bit, zone eight. So that was zone seven. Zone eight is pointing to these social conditions themselves sort of objectively. Um, so when we're looking at art, we might appreciate the overall technical, economic, and logistical systems and collaborations that made the artwork possible, including the overall quality of production, distribution, and or commercial value of the artwork. How well did this artwork sell? that is actually gonna factor into your appreciation of, of a piece of art. How mainstream was this or how underground was this or you know, so forth. A question that you might ask is, what kinds of tools, instruments or technologies made this artwork possible? How successful was the artwork? What kind of behind the scenes collaborations made it possible? How does the overall production quality enhance or detract from the transmission of meaning? Um, and for me, I engage this practice all the time. When I watch something that I really like, I go to IMDb, right? And I start like looking at like every actor that was in it. I want to know where they were in their careers when they created this thing. I want to know what was going on with the director. I want to know, you know, what's going on in the writer's life. There's just so, something I want to understand sort of the lower rightness of how this production, this collaboration came together in the first place. And that actually sort of factors into my appreciation of, of a work of art. Yeah. Um, 
one of the obvious things, I mean, I've got several notes here, but one of the obvious uh, ones to look at in art is uh, sales. Just simple. We, we all, everybody's experienced this. Like is an artist quote selling out, which means that like creating art uh, mainly for a benefit of a social economic system or under pressure, you know, the record label, for example, says you need to make a song that sells. It needs to go like this, sound like this. Now go perform it. You know, it's like, okay, they do that. Um, or, you know, you find, I, I saw the other day, I don't know, some random video about Radiohead, uh, their um, OK Computer album. Like the, mm -hmm. the, the record label was just like, no effing way. This thing is crazy garbage. And they're like, tough, we're going to do it anyway. So they kind of pushed against that economic, that social economic system and ends up being one of the most popular albums of all time. <laughs> but you can see that a lot, you know, and um, especially music. I think because music, we often say this should be pure. Give me your music, right? And if it doesn't feel pure, we note that. Or maybe we don't because we're just like, I don't care. I, I give me the candy, you know. Film is a little bit harder sometimes, right? Because there's so much you can't hardly make a film without all the economics being involved. Mm -hmm. And so sometimes it's hard to know is like, is somebody creating a film authentically or not? TV, we see this quite a lot, you know, like does a series continue or not simply based on economics? That's it. It could be an how many amazing shows in recent years have been canceled for no good reason, not because of the art, because art is great, but because of some hidden algorithm that we don't even have access to now because only in Netflix or the app. And so this impacts greatly our experience of it. Some other simple things like can we, do we watch an episode one at a time or do we get a binge it? Right. That's a different, totally different experience. And that's that's a system, the technological systems, the control of the delivery systems. Um, does it have ads or not? That's changed big time. Or, or like, I, I don't watch anything with ads anymore, you know, um, but that used to be part of our viewing experience. And that was very much part of a social economic system. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, on the deeper things, like some of the, you know, if we look at cultural systemic oppression and racism we look at like who has access to resources and you can trace this back to like who has access to education like who can get into the best music schools who can get into film schools such that you get the experience to develop um uh your artistic abilities and then have contact so you can then get your script in front of somebody it's already really incredibly hard to get a film made you know um uh, and uh, that impacts what films get made and who gets spots in a, in a in a movie. These are all social economic factors that aren't just. It's not just somebody's merit. Like this is really clear <laughs> in a in a heavily capitalist system that yeah, not everybody's getting to make the art. And one last thing I'll throw out there is something really interesting that I think ties into this is like country music is really really interesting. Um, it it's one of the ones you can analyze that show quite distinctly for. <laughs> quadrants in there and uh i don't really listen to country music but i do like sturgill simpson it was the first country music artist that i heard that i was like i want to get this album he's really progressive also seems to be kind of deep spiritually won a grammy for best country album uh but this uh country music cmas they they won't even let him in the door oh wow now maybe Is that's a bit politics? Yeah, so it might be a bit more on the uh, there's a things happening it's, it's heavily on that lower left side of like that doesn't but right. that's think about that. But then there's the systems of controlling who he has access to, right? right? So he can't get access on television to be performing in front of all this massive audience because they don't like his lower left stuff or some of the whatever bizarre state experiences, things that he communicates. But it's really fascinating to see how this play out. But those are the kind of things that, of course, too, Corey, I love behind the scenes and like, how does a film get made, especially because mm -hmm. it's so crazy that we can even make a film and how many systems it takes to all work so that way we can just sit back and watch a film and then criticize it <laughs> that's right yeah. 
That's right. And, and I think oftentimes the postmodern move is to recognize that the sort of the, the medium is just as much a part of the arts transmission as anything mm-hmm. else. It's not mm-hmm. just a canvas. It's not just, but like, no, this is actually, so I think for example, you know, the Beatles, one of the things uh-huh. that the Beatles did was they weren't just playing their instruments, you know, according to their skills in the upper right quadrant. Yeah, yeah, right. They took the entire studio and turned it into an instrument. They took, they, they made an instrument out of their shared environment. And that was a postmodern move. That was actually them saying, this isn't, you know, the studio isn't just the background where it's, it's capturing our performance. It's actually part of the performance. Right. Mm-hmm. And they innovated this new way of making albums that was totally sort that that abandoned this idea that the studio was only there to get the highest fidelity live live ish recording you can. It was actually like, no, there are tons of possibilities in the studio that we can't find outside the studio. Let's play with those possibilities and bring this into our art sort of explicitly. Right. Which. Mm-hmm in turn created the platform for things like electronic music, for example, mm-hmm. or like this, you know, the medium is the message, which is a very, very common postmodern refrain. And in fact, Bruce, I would love your opinion on this because my sense is that of all these zones, zones seven and zone four really begin to come online, particularly zone seven at later altitudes. It's hard to discern zone seven it's hard to discern how systems are actually limiting or affecting choices being made on by the individual participants of a system it's hard to notice that until you get to the green altitude or at least at the green altitude is when you really start caring a whole lot about it which again i think is my good faith enactment of wokeism, a lot of sort of the conditions that wokeism is responding to with a great amount of urgency can be found in zone seven and can be found in zone four. And oftentimes zone seven and zone four have a way of sort of reinforcing each other, which in turn reinforces our zone two shadows and structures of consciousness because these all bleed with each other. But is that your sense that a zone seven perspective is it comes a little bit later in the game? Yes, yeah, I think even zone eight and seven, there are there are simpler ways that we can engage with systems and take systemic perspectives and be aware of interdependence and things like that. But often it's actually not until we have access to computer technology that allows us to detect patterns over time and interrelate factors um, together with, with, you know, once you get past two or three feedback loops, the human brain is overwhelmed in terms of being able to make any adequate kinds of predictions. And we only really can begin to build a systems picture using software that can help, you know, run different equations and scenarios and then give it to us in a presentable form. Um, that we can digest, we can kind of deceive ourselves that we're actually seeing systemically when actually we're, we're really seeing at, at often at best some down-translated simpler pictures mm. based on, on you know, uh, more complex analyses. So that's just one technological side to that. And, you know, 
I think you know something like social autopoiesis, um, where it's looking at uh, communication flows within a system. You know, you can track that, but it's it, without you know software and without a lot of research, it's really hard to do that. You know, I think memetics, you know, the art of the growing art of memetics is trying to do that now, um, looking at how memes operate within systems. And there's a, you know, a zone, both left hand and right hand lower quadrants are involved in that. Um, so, yeah, but definitely I think uh, it, it comes on later and it's hard to do well. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I think that's a real learning curve for all of us is to be able to practice the art of systems thinking and really develop in that Um learning to see and appreciate feedback loops and how they work and how um, they interact um, and to recognize the limitations on our ability to actually do that well. Right. Um, I wanted to throw in a couple little extraneous kinds of things just very quickly about what I, I could possibly be associated with the, the, the lower right and art. Um, I'm thinking about some analyses again that were done with mathematics and and computers, but uh, beginning to perceive similarities mathematically in the patterning, for instance, of a culture's music and a culture's architecture, that there's a deep systemic um, ratio going on in terms of how people are interrelating, um, you know, different elements to create an aesthetic, to create a mood, to promote states um, that are often happening unconsciously, but are nevertheless detectable systemically mm -hmm. in terms of, you know, what kind of, you know, intervals and scenarios and, and, and notes are used in a composition and what are, uh, you know, the, the proportions used in architecture or um, in, in, you know, fashion and other or ritual enactments those things are present systemically, but they're not easy to pick up on. But once you do, they're really fascinating to um, investigate, you know, mm -hmm. in terms of what's going on, uh, you know, with the overall cultural zeitgeist and the kinds of, of art that they're producing. And although this is a bit on the mythic side, I was thinking about uh, what some old Chinese emperors used to do, which is that they would listen for certain kinds of, they would have people go out to different parts of the kingdom and listen for what kinds of scales are being used. Hmm. And there was a sense that certain scales are harmony producing and certain scales are disharmonic. And they wanted to try to catch where disharmony was growing in a cultural system and in a social system. And stop it because they felt systemically that would have broad impact on the health of that community and the relationship of that community to the rest of the the empire of the kingdom very interesting and and that actually so i just wanted because there's a there's a version of that in the west too around um the evolution of temperance right how do we tune a piano Right, because pianos can't be tuned sort of linearly. There's a curvature to sound that can be really, really, you know, make it very, very difficult to tune a piano where every note is 
is sort of uh, harmonizing in key with all the other notes because of that curvature. So, you know, we've had imperfect temperaments throughout our history. So this is all zone eight stuff. This is like how music theory is sort of, you know, organized uh, so that we can use it to create art. However, the options, the opportunities that you have to create art are either going to be limited or opened up by sort of the lower right rule set that you're coming from. So for a long time with previous versions of temperance, there were some notes that actually became literally illegal to play. Laws were written <laughs> to prevent musicians from playing certain notes because these notes were too discordant and disharmonious and associated with evil. It was the devil's notes, right? Um, and then, you know, we sort of went through a couple other versions of temperance where you actually sort of mitigate that problem. There aren't these dead zones on the keyboard anymore like there, like there used to be. Um, but it's fascinating because we start here with sort of a, 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 a set of rules in the lower right quadrant in, the, in zone eight, which is then going to, we can take the perspective of how those rules are going to limit creativity by taking a zone seven look or by looking at actual artifacts that were created under those rules and do a direct comparison. Um, but every step of the way, we're seeing how these perspectives, once you change one factor here in this zone, all of a sudden you're changing culture a little bit, both on the inside and the outside, you're changing consciousness a little bit, both on the inside and the outside. And this is one of the reasons why I continue to think that an integral response to the social justice movement needs to include these kinds of perspectives. These are the valuable perspectives that are being surfaced by things like critical race theory that we want to you know, avoid throwing out with the rest of the bathwater. And there's a lot of bathwater there too. But if Integral doesn't actually consciously take on these perspectives and either transclude them or come up with a more fulfilling set of zone seven and zone four factors themselves that have more explanatory power, um, then, you know, we're, we're not actually having, I think, a healthy relationship with some of these cultural emergence that we're seeing. And in fact, I think that by recognizing these zones and how some of these theories really do excel in some of these zones, but completely fall on their face when they misapply them to other zones. Again, like you can't take a Marxist look at sort of how consciousness can be shaped by our systems and then start calling people a racist because of it. That's a zone category error. <laughs> Right there. Just because uh, an average person is growing up in these systems doesn't mean that their zone two structures are determined to be bigoted or racist or homo, you know, uh, homophobic or what have you. It just means that like, oh, this, this can happen to an average person. It doesn't mean it did happen to an average person. So this is where we have to be careful. And this is what I get really excited about because I'm like, this is this is how integral can begin to directly contribute to these conversations, clean them up by putting things in their proper place, right? Everything in its right place. And once we have a sense of like, okay, you're allowed to color here, but the minute you color outside the lines and go into another zone, you're, you're doing bad non-exclusion. We can call you on that and you can rein it back in. That way there, we can actually take your work and it can be useful in sort of a larger enfoldment of all these different perspectival zones. That seems really urgent right now. Yeah. And uh, Corey, uh, I've, I've still been really liking uh, how you referred to green as pre-integral. 
mm-hmm. uh, in, in a lot of ways and just kind of still turned around in my head over and over. And um, one of the things is that like, it's so interesting that, that green as a pre-integral has like so many things going for it all at once. And yet like, can't get it all together in order to be effective. And that's mm-hmm. the thing, like to be really effective. And it's just because all the pieces haven't been put together enough you know, certain things aren't owned. The authority especially is not really owned, even though it's acted out. And so Integral can do that. Now, on the Integral side, since we're speaking to, presumably, people who are at this kind of maturity level, um, the thing is, is that, like, we really have to inhabit. Like, this is, we've said this since day one. Like, if you're not actually inhabiting everything you're talking about, mm-hmm. then, you know, like, one, you've, we, not, we might not be Integral. That, that's one. I know, scary thought that like, oh, actually, just because we're reading Ken Wilber's books doesn't mean that that's where we're living from. But maybe we are, but like, it's just not fully enough. And that means that we can't, we can't be effective as integral people. So like, and that's why I think art is actually really, really incredibly useful to viscerally evoke that, like, where am I inhabiting and where am I not inhabiting? So using the, for example, the model we created today, uh, or that really <laughs> you and Bruce mapped this out. I'm just here along for the ride. Uh, that like, if we can use this map, you know, and um, as a way to inhabit, then then maybe we can get somewhere. But if not, man, it's just a tired old story. And we, we need, we need change. We need effectiveness in the world. So I, I like this combination. Art feels fun and enjoyable and integral theory feels incredibly useful and gives us perspectives, but combine the two, eh, maybe we get somewhere. Yeah. Maybe that's why these episodes have been popular, like when we covered <laughs> the movies and things like that. Yeah, that's right. No, that's right. Because there is, um, you know, again, our art oftentimes speaks for us, it speaks through us. And, uh, you know, we have the, the, the luxury and really a privilege of being able to grow up alongside our art. I mean, there's a sense in which it feels like our art is maturing alongside us. Um, it's really our enactment of art that's maturing with every step, but that is such a rewarding feeling, right? Where like you can be completely just swept away by a piece of art when you're say 18 years old, right? And then 20 years later, you are still swept away by that same piece of art. Like you get that same zone one phenomenology of just like, I lost myself to this. And yet that gets reinforced by all these other little details and perspectives that have come online ever since the first time you saw that artwork. So that artwork, it feels like it grew with you. You can see more of it, right? Even if the effect it has on you is more or less the same, there's more of it to have that effect. And that is, I mean, there's something just absolutely gorgeous about that. Something very, very special about that. Mm. Right. And I think mm. that that's what, um, you know, I think that we tend to be more attracted to forms of art where we can have exactly that kind of relationship where we have a sense that like, there's a little bit of this that's over my head right now. And I can't wait to catch up to it, <laughs> right? I can't wait to revisit this 10 years from now. Mm-hmm. Um, I think those are the pieces of art that really get, you know, sort of tattooed uh, onto our hearts in a certain kind of way. Mm-hmm. Just commenting about the difficulty of, of apprehending systems and taking the systems view. Mm-hmm. There's an exception to that. And that is really that stories are like the inside of systems. Oh, interesting. And it's through story that we can begin to feel 
the mm -hmm. contours and the dynamics and the interactions of systems. Mm -hmm. And so that to me brings art very centrally into the picture in terms of really understanding and working with and affecting change in our systems is telling the right stories, the right stories with both the right depth and the right um, edges to them that, that raise that puzzlement and, and that can inspire that growth. Absolutely. Mm. Yep. No, it's beautiful. Well, guys, it's been over an hour and a half here. Um, yeah. Do we have any, any, anything else we want to throw on the table before we start to, I, I'm thinking one of the things I'll do is I'll just read real briefly the questions from each zone, just as, you know, kind of put a capstone on it. And because um, there's a lot of complexity here and I'm hoping that there's a, a simplicity on the other side of that complexity that can help people again, just be, a little bit more fluent with these perspectives and a little bit more confident of their capacity to enact them uh, at any given, any given moment. But before we do that, is there anything else that we want to throw on the table? If there's a moment, I have a four question pop quiz. <laughs> <laughs> there are four major theories of art. Imitationalism, basically, how well does this represent that? Mm -hmm. It's looking, you know, the, how, how accurate of a representation of the object is this? What zone is that? That's, I mean, that feels largely like a zone six point of view. I mean, if we're doing an object to object comparison. Yeah. Yeah, yeah for me too, it feels like zone six. How about yeah. formalism, which basically just looks at all of the elements of the artwork and how well they're executed and how well they're interrelated. Uh, largely zone six, but also maybe a bit of zone eight. Right, right. Hmm. Then emotionalism, basically, what are the feelings that it evokes? That's, that's an, an uh, art is successful for how well it evokes feelings. Mm, that's going to be a zone one right there. Yeah. Right, and let's see, oh yeah, instrumentalism, which basically means uh, that the art how successful is the art at communicating a message? Oh, man. <laughs> there we go. Zone three, baby. <laughs> yep. yeah. With all the zone four constraints about what kinds of messages can yeah. be delivered at yep. a given time. Hmm. And great. you could even get some zone seven in there too, yeah. in yeah. terms of affecting systemic change through. Right, right. Um, cool. That's, That's right. great. Yeah, no, that was, that was, that was a nice little breakdown. And again, I think what it, what it, what it shows us is um, how valuable truly subversive art is, which isn't to say that resonant art, you know, sort of verifying art isn't, you know, Ryan, when you were gone, I was telling Bruce about one of the reasons why I love Black Alicia so much is because they, they resonated with me. They, they, weren't, they, weren't, they weren't subverting anything within me. They sort mm -hmm. of um, helped me feel like, oh, other people have these experiences too. Mm -hmm. But the art that we tend to really hone in on, right? The art that we 20 years later look back on and be like, wow, that was important art, right? Is mm -hmm. going to be like that subverse, like this art was created in, you know, among a certain set of circumstances and all that, but it itself changed the circumstances. It changed okay. what we feel like we're allowed to talk about. It changed what we're allowed to find beautiful, right? Which is constantly in flux in our culture. Yeah. Um, change something. And it's, it brings me back to, you know, Ken's sort of uh, view of, of just the microgeny of evolution itself, how ev every single moment 
there is a karma and a creativity, right? Mm. And there's a choice. Every holon has at every moment a choice between inheriting the karmas from the previous moment or you have that spark of creativity where you get a chance, an opportunity to create something new. And if that thing, that new thing gets selected for, that becomes the karma of the next moment. And this is how things evolve. This is how cultures evolve. This is how individuals evolve um, through these little just opportunities to punctuate our existence with genuine moments of free will and choice. I don't think most of us engage in free will very often at, you know, at all. I think that 99% of the time we are just following the inertias of our physics, our chemistry, our biology, our psychosocial conditioning, but then you get these opportunities to make a different kind of choice. And for me, these perspectives, I think becoming more familiar with these perspectives expands the range of choices that are available to us at any given moment to both inhabit our reality and also to enact it in new and novel ways that can hopefully create more meaning for ourselves and for the people around us. Mm. And Corey, one thing you mentioned there, and I'll just put this as a little footnote for people to pull on the thread later, but um, maybe think about, we've mentioned this a couple of times, but the Strauss-Howe generational theory, um, like these big arcing phases that humanity can go through and seem to line up, you know, it's just one offering, but like, I would imagine that what, if this is kind of thing is true, like what phase humanity is in will change what kind of art we're seeking for various reasons. So like, if we're like, like people would say we're in most likely the crisis mode right now. Uh, the, so there's unraveling and then crisis, and then you get to, um, you know, start again and, you know, you can go back in time, like uh, golden periods, things like that. But these days, I'm more interested in something that grounds me. I'm not interested in in like art, like Ted Lasso. We talked about Ted Lasso. Yep. That's the kind of thing I'm just like, give me something that just, you know, every day I'm dealing with the news and everything. I just want something simple right now. But in a different period, you start getting an itch, like stir some shit up. You know, we've been complacent for a while. You know what I mean? So like, I think it's really interesting how we relate to that in a bigger meta cycle of art, which is a whole nother probably episode. But like, I just, no, the things really you said made... No, I, I love it. And in fact, I want to do a future episode, Ryan, Inhabit Your Generation. Let's bring some Gen yeah. Xers on. And, yeah. And oh, that'd be fun. Out. Bruce, what fun. is your sense? Generational theory, is this largely a, it feels to me largely zone seven and zone four. We're, we're, what we're doing is we're reconstructing average, uh, average agents, an average sort of sense of what an agent engaging these changing systems, these historically changing systems would look like. And then we're noting how that changes sort of the different permissions and taboos that exist within their cultures. Does that, does that feel right to you? That does. Yeah. Awesome. Mm-hmm. I like it when things feel right to you because it makes me mm-hmm. feel smart. Um, I, I think I probably have to go check on my tree guys again, y'all. So yeah, I, I um, but uh, I know we're wrapping up, so I may say goodbye at this moment. Cool. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, Ryan, what I'll do is I'll just, I'm just going to read through these zone yeah. questions again. Um, just to, again, remind our audience of, of everything we just went through. Um, Bruce, good. I also want to just take a quick opportunity to thank you. Bruce is raising his hand right now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, Bruce. <laughs> no, I want to thank you for, for, you know, taking this time to spend yeah. with us to talk about this. It's been endlessly fascinating. And I want you to take a moment just to talk about um, the integral stage. 
Yeah, really great uh, having you here, Bruce. I really yeah. enjoyed it. Looking forward to next time. I'll, I got to take off, y'all. Good All to right, see Ryan. you. Thanks, buddy. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Thank you, Ryan. Yeah, nice to talk with you and to be with you, Corey. And yeah, um, thank you. It's been great to, to hang out with you. This is our first time to do something like this. I really enjoyed it. And, Definitely not um, our last. Yeah, great, great. Yeah, been for two years now pushing away at uh, developing the integral stage. And initially, the idea for that was to have a place where uh, we could take some of the forum disputes and have a face-to-face -face encounter and talk about some difficult topics where uh, maybe things could be worked out and maybe contact could be made in ways that were not possible mm. in just the forum space where there's less signals being exchanged and we don't feel we're as much face-to-face -face with another individual. But in getting the integral stage rolling, um, we decided, you know, actually it was me in the beginning, um, decided it was, I didn't want to jump right out of the gate into something that difficult. So I started just producing other content on, you know, themes and um, engaging with people who are recognized as, you know, in our community as having something to say, but don't often put into the media very much um, and, and how can we bring those voices forward and explore intersections of what's going on in the integral community with uh, Metamodern and Game B and Synthiest and other sister and brother communities that are out there mm -hmm. that seem to be intuiting a number of the same things, but maybe taking a little bit different track and having different emphases, but what could happen if we begin to synthesize these voices more and bring them into greater dialogue with each other? Um, how can we contribute to our emerging integral moment through that? And so that's pretty much what the integral stage project has become still mostly centering integral voices, but also regularly entering into dialogue with metamodernists or uh, game B or other kinds of folks around um, I think the the major themes that are up for the broader meta community. Um, and Lehman Pascal is a, a good dear friend, and he noticed I was not that fluid <laughs> in terms of interviewing, and he was more loquacious than I am. And he said, I can probably do some of these interviews, and he's done a wonderful job with it, and he's done a lot of the interview content for us. Um, I still you know, do videos and I do some interviews and, and talks, but um, a lot of my time now is behind the scenes producing the videos. I'm yep. gradually developing some skills over a couple of years from really terrible to now mediocre and I'll, I'll keep going. So. I'm loving your graphics these days, man. I told you that a couple yeah. of days ago. I'm loving that the great. No, and the conversations that, that you have on the Nickel Sage are just, they're, they're so rich and they're so um, sort of unabashedly uh, in depth, you know, you're, you're not, you're not, you're not necessarily trying to break this down for integral newcomers. I mean, these are conversations for and among people who have given this some serious thought, some serious consideration. And I think you're doing such a good job of illuminating this sort of, I'll just call it an integrally adjacent territory that we all share together. Um, I, I get the same sense that we're all sort of headed in the same direction. We're just kind of taking slightly different paths to get there. And those paths have different emphases from, from other paths. Uh, and in fact, I would suggest 
folks listen to uh, a conversation we just published with yourself, uh, Rob Smith and uh, Paul Marshall um, on Integral Life, where, where you're actually talking about sort of the big three, um, you know, integrally adjacent uh, projects that we're, you know, trying to coordinate a little bit. Um, that, was a, that was a really great discussion that got a great response from our audience. So I encourage people to check that out. Great. Thank you. That was a delight to do. And, and Paul Marshall's doing really great work in that area, exploring those intersections. I've done a little bit, but he's done a lot more in writing his book and, and some further things after that. Fantastic. Well, Bruce, thanks again, man. I'm just going to uh, make a quick transition here. I'm just going to read some of these questions again for folks, and then um, we'll say goodbye. Does that sound good? Great. Cool, man. All right. So just for review, here are the eight perspectives that you can use, in fact, that you probably are already using without knowing it in order to more fully enact your art and really your world, your life, your relationships, etc. So here they are. In the upper left quadrant, zone one, the inner of the upper left. What is my immediate in the moment experience of this artwork? What emotional or spiritual states is it evoking for me? Zone two, the outer of the upper left. What stages, intelligences, typologies, shadows, and other unconscious material is this artwork lighting up within me? In the lower left, the inner of the lower left, zone three, how are other people experiencing and interpreting this artwork? How do their experiences and interpretations influence my own? How would I respond to this artwork if the artist was standing in front of me right now? Zone four, which is the outer of the lower left, what are the cultural currents or patterns that this artwork is trying to hold a mirror to? How resonant or subversive is this artwork? Is it playing it safe or is it pushing the edge? How would this artwork be enacted across multiple different cultures and contexts? Now we go to the upper right quadrant, zone five, the inner of the upper right. Uh, what does this artwork say about the artist's interiors? What meaning can I infer or reconstruct from the text, form, content, etc., of this artwork? Zone six, which is looking at the upper right quadrant from the outside, the outer of the upper right. What are the most important features, elements, or qualities contained within this artwork? How skilled is the artist, both technically and in creating the desired effect within this artwork? Now we go to the lower right quadrant the inner of the lower right quadrant, zone seven. What are the conscious and or unconscious social conditions and circumstances surrounding the artist that are embedded in this artwork? And how does that inform the artwork itself? How do my own social circumstances influence my experience and enactment of the artwork? So you're sort of asking both in terms of the artist and in terms of yourself. Uh, and then finally, zone eight, which is the outer of the lower right, what kinds of tools, instruments, technologies, etc., made this artwork possible? How successful was this artwork? What kind of behind-the-scenes collaborations made it possible? How does the overall production quality enhance or detract from the transmission of meaning? So those are the eight zones. Uh, they've been tremendously helpful for me over the last few weeks as I've been sort of just opening up some of this material and trying to um, name uh, some of the simplest versions of these perspectives. I hope it's valuable to you guys at home as well. Um, yeah, let us know in the comments right down there, wherever you happen to be watching this video on YouTube or Integral Life or what have you. How helpful has this conversation been? What questions do you have that you want us to cover 
uh, in a future episode. Um, thanks again for watching. Bruce, thanks again for joining us, brother. And uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Thank you.